This is the Annex of Sociology Podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, we talk with Derek Silva, Associate Professor of Sociology at King's University College in London, Ontario, Canada. Derek is the author of several papers at the intersection of critical criminology and sports sociology. Derek is the co-editor with Liam Kennedy of the book Sports, Power, and Crime Towards a Critical Criminology of Sport. He is also working with Nathan Coleman Lamb on the book The End of College Football, Exploitation in the Ivory Tower and on the Gridiron. He also co-hosts the End of Sport podcast with Kalman Lamb and Johanna Mellis. Critical Criminology, Sports, and the Exploitation of Athletes, today on The Annex. Stay with us. Well, Derek, so happy to have you on The Annex. I know you've been on before talking about teaching, but we're here to talk today about your academic work, you know, your professional work as a sociologist, writer, and scholar, criminologist on the intersection of critical criminology and sociology and sports sociology particularly. Before we get to that, tell us how are things in London, Ontario, Canada? It's May 26, 2020, and uh, we are still in, in a pandemic. So how are you doing? Well, Dan, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back on the on the podcast. And yeah, things are really interesting. We're at this sort of turning point in Canada and in Ontario, which is the province I live, um, where we're finally reaching the sort of vaccine levels that people feel comfortable kind of opening up with a little bit added risk. So we're starting in a couple of weeks to open up. We're still under a total lockdown, like a stay at home order. Still can't get a haircut, as you can tell. Um, we're on video as well as you might be able to tell. I haven't been able to get a haircut in in several months, and things are still shut down. But there's promise. Things are opening back up. I think we just reached 65% of the Ontario population now have their first dose of the vaccine. We're doing a kind of elongated wait between the uh, first and second doses. So we're we're getting there. We're in an amazingly privileged position being in Canada, being a place that has procured so many vaccines, even when other places in this world are still suffering to great lengths. So I am not complaining at all. I'm able to sit in my basement with a job, talk to you, and it's wonderful. But this pandemic has been hard on so many people. So I'm also cognizant of that. This is hard. So it'll be nice to get out. The weather's looking nice. That's the benefit. It's like 30 degrees Celsius today. So it's wonderful. That's good. Good to hear. You know, here in the United States, things are different. Yeah. And uh, Texas, like, like they said in the advertisements when I was a kid, like a whole other country. So anyway, let's, we can move on from that. <laughs> let's talk about, let's talk about your work. Cause I, you know, I read some of your papers, uh, looked at the information that you, you sent over the book prospectus, the first chapter of, of the edited volume. It's all what I really like doing about doing this is that it's all really interesting and I get to learn stuff that I don't normally read in my everyday in my everyday life, which is awesome. So your work stitches together two fields that are not often in conversation. I'm thinking particularly about these papers you have on NHL violence and the regulation of deviance or of any kind of harm that oversteps some kind of boundary that the NHL has put into place. So you work in this area of criminology and sports. When did you start seeing the connections between these two fields? Yeah, it's actually a, a, an interesting question and a kind of a story I like to, to tell folks. Because when I was in my undergrad and I started realizing, I did my undergrad in, in criminology, and I started realizing that I, I was really interested in research and really interested in like answering questions that I had about the social world and just learning how to do it and learning from great people and, and how to actually go about like the method side of it. 
So I'm like learning how to do research. And I'm realizing that as I research more, the things that I'm interested in, I like start to dislike the things that I'm interested in. I start to not dislike, but I start to realize that there's like a structure of harm behind all of them. There are problematic features in almost everything. And I told myself that I'm like, I am never doing it to sport. I was a huge sports fan. In many ways, I still am. I was really into sports as an undergrad, as a sort of typical cisgender male, white male, young person. I was really into sports. And I said, I'm not going to turn my, let's call it the sociological imagination, onto sports because I don't want to ruin it. And then like I started, I was just doing more and more research. My research area was in terrorism studies. So not related to sport and something like I could be like, yes, this is this is just so harmful that there's nothing good that can come out of that to, to be ruined. I just want to understand that more. And then like that got me through like my dissertation and stuff. And then the more and more I sort of read about people's negotiation with a similar question and the more I listen to podcasts and people talking about their research areas, I started to realize that like the things we like, the things that we care about are exactly where we should be putting our sociological imagination are exactly what we should be. We should try to make them better. We should try to highlight the problematic features of a variety of things that we're interested in because we want to make them them better. And uh, then I immediately started when I sort of realized that or the light went off in, in the back of my head to like, all right, maybe I can like actually have an impact in making this these things that I like a little bit better. I really started to kind of pivot my research away from the terrorism stuff and more into the sports stuff. And really, I think you can tell that if you just even look at my CV, there's an instantaneous sort of shift. Okay, I was doing a lot of terrorism stuff, a lot of social control stuff. Boom, I'm doing all sports. And that was actually part of a much longer trajectory where I was using these same ideas, these same sociological concepts, these same methods that I was using in my sort of main first research area and exploring sports and exploring the problematic discourses, strategies, actions, behaviors that exist in the sporting world. And then that sort of was the impetus for me being, okay, like I'm going to take this sociological imagination and apply it directly to sport. And that has led to not only my work highlighting the sort of nexus between criminal justice, crime, punishment, deviance in the sporting world, but also the podcast and, and the end of sports stuff that, that I'm doing, which tries to, it's all part of the same overarching project that tries to explore the ways in which harm is produced and reproduced in the sporting world, because we, I think that sports can be better. And I think that sports should be better. And we tend not to put them in our critical gaze. We tend to just let them kind of float out there as this thing. Don't touch it. Don't hurt it. We love it. It's great. It's the best thing ever. And I'm like, hold on, hold on. It's not any of those things. It's actually part of the same structure that leads to social inequality, discrimination, oppression, systemic racism, white supremacy, all of these things that we critique in almost every other sphere of life. So why not sport? So long-winded answer to your, to your question, but it's been part of a long trajectory of my career. I mean, I, the two things that come out from that for me, I mean, first is that you're drawing a connection between your past work in criminology and your transition from the study of terrorism and the control of, of terrorism to a, a different venue, sort of a different you know realm of, of social activity. 
But also, you know, at the same time, it is a different realm of social activity. And, you know, the other point just to make for folks who are thinking about, oh, man, you know, I'm at the end of my dissertation, you know, what do I do next? Or how am I going to decide what my next project is? It doesn't necessarily have to be in the same exact line. Because the point about sociological tools and theories and our methods is that they can be really flexible, right? So I think in part, your your career and your story illustrates some of that flexibility and could be helpful to folks who are thinking about, you know, what they want to do. If they've developed a new interest, you know, we don't have to be so siloed into into one one exact thing. I mean, that's one of the freedom. Most of us don't get jobs at, you know, Research One universities where we have a, a ton of research expectations in addition to our high teaching loads. And so, you know, that gives us in some ways a little bit more creativity or flexibility in what we might you know, want to develop as our next line of, of research. And continuing to ask important questions that are motivating, I think, is a really important thing. And and you get... Um, you can get tired of working on a particular topic. Uh, some people do and some people don't, you know, it's the hedgehogs and foxes kind of thing. But but um, at least, you know, we have a set of tools in sociology and criminology that help us think in different ways and, and can be applied. Yeah, I mean, and, I mean, and you, you kind of nailed it when you said, like, not all of us are at these sort of R1 research intensive places. That, and we do have a little bit more flexibility, flexibility but some are. And and I I would suggest for for some of those folks like maybe transitioning in, after your dissertation to a completely different field might not be the best strategy, but you absolutely can do it. Um, and there there are a variety of ways. I view myself now as not so much pivoting completely away from my previous work. I just have sort of two in some ways dialectically opposed areas of research that I I sort of continue to dabble in. Um, which I think is the sort of maybe the mm. better, the, the the more pragmatic approach, if you will. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I mean, for me, I, I like to toggle between yeah. between things because that just helps me keep each one kind of fresh, you know, as I move move back and forth. Um, so you you, you and uh, Liam Kennedy have done a series of papers on violence in the NHL, you know, folks who have received pretty lengthy suspensions for their targeting of players, the kinds of uh, violent incidents that make like NHL highlight reels. And I think I think there have, are actually like videos that are produced of like the gr- most gruesome kind of hits that uh, have have been, have occurred yeah, on the, Don, on the Don hockey Jerry ice. used to sponsor a, a series called Rock'em Sock'em, which is just like old VHS tap, tapes. I imagine there's there's DVD videos of just like hits, like grotesque imagery, and in, the, in many ways that reflects this entire project. But we can get there. Yeah. So to Cherry, just so folks know, that's a very famous hockey announcer up in Canada, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely famous and, and super problematic. It's super, super, super problematic for all of the reasons that we will talk about in this episode. Um, embodies this idea of like hegemonic masculinity and and, and toxic Eurocentrism and uh, a variety of things. Okay, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, let's first of all, these papers, the, the first one, Discipline That Hurts, and the other one, uh, Knuckle Dragging Thugs. First of all, you really have a way with titles. <laughs> because I really see sort of the qualitative, uh, you know, eth- not ethnographic, but the qualitative process of coding in here. These seem like in vivo, almost in vivo codes that come from yeah. your the corpus of uh, media articles, other kinds of writing that you analyze for, for these papers. So you've got these two recent papers, Discipline That Hurts, Punitive Logics and Governance in Sport. 
and knuckle-dragging thugs, civilizing processes, and the biosocial revolution in the National Hockey League. Both of these use what you call critical discourse analysis to understand the cultural significance of violence in the sport of hockey. So for those of us who don't know uh, much about critical discourse analysis, can you explain what that is and you know the, the methods you used in these papers and what did you find out? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you for for acknowledging and see recognizing the the quotes that tend to lead all of the titles of of my papers. Just because you're exactly right, they're kind of nodes and in vivo that really struck out. And I let data speak for themselves, I should say. So whether that be participants' words, some of my my public work, or whether that be like actual quotes from what I'm analyzing, that should be that should be first and foremost. And then we can add the more boring, like academic jargon title, subtitle afterwards. So thanks for for noticing that. And yeah, I've long used critical discourse analysis. It was one of the first things I was sort of trained on in grad school because I tended to focus on the relationships between the language and the ways we talk about things and the structure or the structural conditions that make that language possible in the first place, which critical discourse analysis is, I think, the tool to allow that to happen. It's basically a methodology that, for me, enables really deep, nuanced, and rigorous assessment of what is sort of meant and intended when language is used to communicate meaning. So it's heavily indebted to the work or to work within the field of sociolinguistics that traces out how power relations that are embedded in language that we use to communicate ideas. So that's what it really is focusing on, to trace out some of these power relations that actually structure the ways we talk about social phenomena. So borrowing from folks like Toon Van Dyke, Norman Fairclaw, Ruth Wodak, and a variety of others, there's an interaction between social structures and let's call them discursive structures, or as Foucault would say, discursive formations that we use to communicate about things. And that is the link between structure and language where I think critical discourse analysis is useful. It helps us understand the power relations that shape language and give meaning to the ways in which we use that language to communicate ideas. So naturally, I think it's a wonderfully powerful tool to explore how power manifests, even latently, in the ways that we talk about social phenomena. And I think that's because Jürgen Habermas would say this is part of the social structure of communicative communicative action. This is all getting at this overarching fundamental idea that social structure actually creates the conditions where language and the words that we use actually get meaning and give meaning. So, for example, in some of our work, we explore how discourses of crime, punishment, and justice in the context of sport distribute meaning about what crime is, how it is understood, how it's to be acted upon, and the role of crime in society more generally. And as you noted, we've looked at how the National Hockey League supplementary discipline regime is actually reinforcing some of the most problematic approaches to crime and deviance that we see elsewhere, like the endorsement of vigilante justice, for instance, the othering of offenders, and the treating of or the treatment of so-called offenders as some sort of like prehistoric, pre-evolutionary and barbaric or inhumane being. We connect these discourses to, to the broad structures of power and authority that shape the ways in which audiences perceive crime, perceive deviance, and even perceive 
the punishment of those offenders in contemporary society. So really what we're doing, what we're trying to do is trace out how audiences are given meaning about crime, deviance, and punishment through something as kind of mundane or trivial as like watching sports. Because I think we get a lot of our ideas about particularly punishment through sports when we think about fines, when we think about penalties, suspensions, et cetera, et cetera. I think we we don't give credit to how much we actually learn about crime and deviance through sport. And that's what we're trying to identify in these pieces. So for folks who don't watch the NHL or, or aren't really sporty people, when we talk about supplementary discipline, let's take an example. So let's say Team A and Team B are playing a hockey game in the NHL, and one player on Team A just like has a just egregiously awful penalty on a player on Team B. Like I don't know, they take out their hockey stick and they just swing that at the dude's head and they draw blood, and uh, they knock the guy out. Yeah. For example, so the person, the offender in that case, the player, the player, obviously they get a penalty and they have to stay off the ice for a certain amount of time. And I imagine there, I don't even know this, but I imagine there are penalties that were even like ejections from the game. So yeah, yeah, yeah. There are game misconducts. There are like, there are minors, which are two minute penalties, majors, five minute or 10 minute misconducts. And then there are ejections from the game which would not be considered supplementary discipline. Supplementary discipline is like after the fact suspensions or fines, or in in some cases, like we would even include in the sort of supplementary regime, our social punishment of those folks, like in media, whether or not that person loses endorsements, things that come after the fact. Yeah, so supplementary is anything that happens like after the game is over in response yeah. to some kind of violent act that occurs on the on the ice. Okay, so your papers, these two papers that we just mentioned, uh, are looking at a sample of folks who were suspended from a a number of games after some violent thing that they did on the ice. And then you looked at a a series of uh, media articles about those folks. And you, you mentioned this a little bit, but one of these papers is about how the offenders, the players who conducted this violent these violent acts are understood uh in in this corpus of of media uh articles so could you tell us about sort of how how many where did you find the articles that what did and what did those articles say in your analysis of them about the players yeah absolutely so it, it, this started off between myself and my colleague at king's liam kennedy who's a wonderful scholar we kind of got together over the course of my first couple of years at king's and we both identified that we were really interested in how like crime and deviance play out in the sporting world we're seeing all these events happen and then seeing media reactions to really harmful on ice things like You've mentioned hitting somebody in the head with a with a hockey stick. That's happened, um, and people have faced some sort of even even some criminal liability um, for things that have happened on the ice. So we're seeing all these things, and we have both watched hockey throughout our lives, being two Canadians. So we we have a long history of of hearing these things. And now as criminologists, we're like, some of these things are really problematic. Some of the ways in which we talk about um, the supposed offender of on-ice violence, um, the ways we talk about those people are very, or can be very problematic. So we decided to like 
make this a little bit more systematic. We can't just like say those things we, or we can in an op-ed, but this is, this is science, right? This is um, sociology. So what we decided to do was try to make it a little bit more systematic by looking at the most, as you, as you put, egregious or the most extreme suspensions uh, or supplementary disciplines of these players and look at how those players were talked about in media. So we went through the last 40 years in the NHL and looked at, took the most extreme suspensions that players received for on ice conduct, not off ice conduct, not conduct related to substance abuse or anything like that, or, or um, performance enhancing drugs, but on ice violent conduct. And we took those and searched um, through LexisNexis, Nex, yeah, LexisNexis and Factiva for all media stories on those players and on those suspensions. We took out, and then we went through, and there were a variety of different exclusion criteria, like duplicates, or if they didn't actually mention. There's a lot of stuff in Factiva, uh, in the databases Factiva and LexisNexis, that actually aren't about the story aren't about what you're looking, but have like one line that are part of um, like kind of a news recap, like Rafi Torres was suspended for 20 games. Like that doesn't tell us anything. So we would exclude that. And then, so we'd, at the end of the day, we have hundreds of articles, if not thousands of articles on all of these different players um, that talk about the on ice violence. And then we can go through, start, put them all in in vivo, start coding, make sure we're coding for the same things, talk to each other, make sure our intercoder reliability is legit, figure out the themes that are emerging because part of this whole project is grounded theory and using the data to drive our theory, which stems back, uh, my use of grounded theory actually stems back for me to a grad seminar I had with uh, the infamous Kathy Chauvaz, who really highlighted like how useful grounded theory is when you take a, discur- a, a sort of critical discourse analysis approach. And I'm so grateful I spent a couple of days with Kathy because that was the greatest seminar I think I've ever taken and really showed me how to blend those two things together and actually let data speak for themselves, which is something I've really struggled with. Often I wanted to speak for the data and true grounded theoretical approach. You need the, the data to speak for themselves. So uh, that's a little bit of, a, of an aside, but we we did this. We practiced this sort of grounded theory, let the themes emerge, and then recoded, went through, coded again, our, our sort of main themes. And then as you keep coding, you get more and more specific with your themes. Uh, and we found that like um, across the board, the ways in which we, or the ways in which media talk about the offender, the offense, and any subsequent s- supplementary discipline are very anachronistic. They're, it's very much like the NHL and media covering hockey is like stuck in the 1980s, 1970s when talking about crime, deviance, and punishment, particularly when it comes to the offender. The, the numbers are in the pieces. I don't have them in front of me, but like the number of times that offender, that the offender was called something like a goon, um, a cement head, a Neanderthal, and like any reference to something with some sort of evolutionary throwback is not dissimilar to how we've talked about criminals, this general idea of criminals over the past 30 or 40 years. We've, it's rare to see this today in media talking about deviance and people who have committed some sort of, of, of crime. It's rare to see this like 
to see like the word Neanderthal come out. But in the NHL, it's like pretty damn common. It's really common to see us approach the offender as this like sort of prehistoric being, as some sort of someone who hasn't aligned with evolution of a more civilized society. So then as we're doing this, like we are not biosocial criminologists, Liam, nor myself, but grounded theory dictates that we sort of use the data to speak for themselves. And we're seeing that what's actually happening here is this, what Norbert Elias would call civilizing process or lingering effects of an uncivilized time for Norbert Elias. And he talked, he was one of the few sociologists to actually talk about sport in his work. So there was a natural overlap to talk about how the NHL is incredibly problematic and media covering the NHL is incredibly problematic in the ways it understands crime, deviance, and how it sends messages to others about that crime and deviance. So then that also took us to look at, instead of, we took out the offender as the the sort of central unit of analysis, and we looked at the offense as the unit of analysis in a subsequent piece published in Punishment in Society, which looked at the governing logics that we use to, to kind of govern those acts. And then we went into a deep dive in how media covered the NHL's role and the supplementary discipline regime's role in this whole thing. And it all painted this picture. The, the NHL, the media covering the NHL, and media covering the offender and the offense all paint this really, really anachronistic picture for crime and deviance that send messages. A, a lot of people still watch the NHL. It might not be the NFL, but a lot of people watch the, the NHL and they get some of these messages from the NHL. And, and we think that's inherently problematic um, when we're talking about crime and deviance in this way. A couple of things I, w- I was struck by i mean the last thing you said about the sort of the educative function of popular sports and yeah. popular media you know sort of more generally so what uh your work reminds me of a lot is some really kind of classic touchstones in the sociology of culture yeah. that that thinks about the kinds of production of messages and their sort of ideological function in society for sustaining hegemonic sort of relations of power yeah. right yeah. So as I'm reading, reading your things over the last couple of weeks, I keep thinking about these connections between your work and cultural, some of the cultural sociology stuff that I was involved in and, and reading in grad school at, at Virginia, which is a place that does a lot of sociology of culture work. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean like the entire field of, of cultural sociology is ripe and perfectly suited to explore the cultural messages that are sent out in if anything it's the best field and as you were talking i was reminded of of clayton childress's book under the cover and the lessons that i that have lingered from reading the the production of a single novel right if anyone hasn't read that book read that book it's absolutely wonderful shout out to dr childress for that because it shows how the production of a single novel is reflective of and also constitutive of all of these power relations of all of these different things that happen to make something successful not successful make something actually a product not a product how it sends messages and then also like hides other messages and reading that before some of these things were published actually still kind of lingers and I think even single pieces in cultural sociology, you read that and you realize that almost every product out there is conditioned in similar ways. So 
I, I think that field is incredible and, and incredibly useful for anyone, um, even if you're not quote unquote a cultural sociologist. Well, that's a good place, I think, to transition to the edited volume that you and and Liam Kennedy have worked on that's forthcoming next year, I think. I that's think you said. COVID kind of changed so, everything. What, so who like we're hoping that it's out 2022. So in that in that uh, volume, I mean, I, I read the first the first chapter. You talk about developing a research program in the critical criminology of sport. So what should people know about the project, but really like maybe help us understand what you mean by critical criminology of sport in relation to some of the articles and and things you've been doing before, but also sort of how this volume sets an agenda for, you know, future research and and inquiry. Yeah, thanks for that question. That's a wonderful question and actually allows me to, to promote the book in a variety of ways, which I'm sure UBC Press would be happy about. But yeah, so like, Part of this whole critical discourse analysis lends itself well to both critical sociology and critical criminology as being fields that look at power hierarchies, look at social inequality as the central kind of modality of social relations um, or as one of the central modalities that frame all social relations. So taking critical discourse analysis, it's not just about applying it to, to criminology and then calling it critical criminology, but it's approaching discourses, practices, ideas, logics, rationales of crime and deviance that are pervasive in a certain context and showing how those reflect broad structures of power that reinforce, sustain, and maintain inequalities of a variety of kinds. And that's the whole project of the book, to make a case for why we should be doing that in the context of sport, which there's two reasons for that. One, very little work has been done in critical criminology in sport. If you go into the Google Scholar archives or on Wikipedia and look up critical criminology in sport, very little will will come up. There's one book by Nick Groombridge, which is a great book, but that's pretty much it. There's, There's no work that's sort of explicitly in this field of critical criminology of sport. And two, and I think these two things are connected. Why there's not much work in this area is because we treat sport as this monolithic positive thing. We tend to approach sport as this amazing pro-social thing where we, from young participation in sport, learn great things about teamwork and leadership and physical activity. And it's incredible. It can be all those things. I am not suggesting it can't. It absolutely is in certain contexts and for certain folks, all of those things. But for others, it is not. For others, it is harmful. It can be harmful. It can lead to traumatic experiences. It can harm their body, their mind, their social life. It can lead to exclusion and oppression. It can reinforce systemic racism, hegemonic masculinity, homophobia, transphobia, white supremacy, all of these things it can reproduce, maintain, and sustain. And I want to bring that to light. Part of my work, I think, is highlighting how sport does all of those things, can do all of those things, in order to hopefully change it, make it better, to make those harmful effects of sport a little bit less pervasive and a little bit less like covered up in some respects, secretive, and mainly to get us off this idea that sport is always and forever this amazing, incredible thing, because it really isn't for many athletes, for many participants, for many onlookers. It actually reinforces a lot of problems that that can be very traumatic for people. So 
that's the whole project of the of the book. And we have 16 chapters from sociologists and criminologists and some legal scholars on a variety of issues from transphobia in sports to intimate partner violence to some theoretical orientations to the political economy of sport and to labor and work and exploitation in sport. There are a number of incredible scholars. Stacy Lorenz is in it. There's some junior scholars that are doing wonderful work. Liam and myself obviously have a chapter in it. There are a variety of chapters that cover so many different kind of themes in this critical criminology of sport. We're really trying to position it as a field of future research. There is a dearth of empirical work in this area. That is almost indisputable. There's very little critical criminological empirical research. And Liam and I are trying to change that, as well as all of the great contributors and many other people. We are not the only people making this claim, but we are trying to change that in the field and trying to make sport more of a pressing unit of analysis for criminologists, particularly critical criminologists. Well, one of the things I appreciate about the volume, at least the first chapter that I read, was the way you and Liam go through the varieties of criminal, critical criminology. And then the one that sort of stands out in my head right now is green criminology and thinking differently about the environmental harms, you know, impacts of either major sporting events, like a bunch of work on the Brazil Olympics that was, that was recently held. They made a bunch of new stadiums, often in places that were very, were somewhat remote, uh, that had... You had to cut down a lot of trees. You had to displace a lot of wildlife. You had to reconstruct a lot of environments in order to make those things happen. But the other thing that comes to mind for me is golf courses. Yeah. I mean, these are like, they're all, um, they're all over the place. And those had to be built over you know, existing things, whether that was farmland or whether that was a park or other productive kind of spaces. And how those spaces are maintained and how they are interact with existing wild spaces or at least less well manicured maintained spaces. It just it just gives us a whole different sort of understanding of what fits in the frame of like crime and deviance, which I think is what is so exciting about critical criminology in the first place. I in graduate school reading Jeff Farrell's work. Was so was so interesting because it was like, whoa, this is not about like what police do. It's not about sort of what the maybe the laws on the books are necessarily, but it's yeah. about what harms exist and how we might either change how we think about those harms or actually ask the question about how harms are productive for certain for certain folks. Because all harms aren't the same and all harms don't actually have the same kinds of implications for where people shake out in terms of the social hierarchy and other forms of inequality. Yeah. And, and I, I think you kind of led me to one of the areas of critical criminology that I think are, that I think critical criminologists have engaged with um, questions um, related to a little bit better than so-called mainstream. I don't like to dichotomize criminology like this, but there is this kind of critical criminology on one side and then quote unquote mainstream criminology on the other. The mainstream criminology tends to focus on much more like laws, criminal justice, big C criminal justice, preventing crime, big C crime, and punishing offenders for a variety of reasons. Whereas critical criminologists have a much more, in my view, a broader um, understanding of crime and deviance that moves away from just like 
crime, breaking laws, facing repercussions, police in the criminal justice system to actually encompass a study of social harms. In critical criminology, this is called zemiology, which you tweeted at me earlier, which is part of um, critical criminology that actually doesn't approach their study as crime and deviance like a critical criminologist would, but approaching it's the study of social harms, which I actually like buy it a lot because their crime only exists in a system where something is considered criminal. And we need to focus on the structural conditions that make one thing a crime and another thing not. And then why do we police that in a particular way? Why do we punish that? All of these things get to a broader point of where they're trying to alleviate harm to society. And in some ways, they're the ways in which we've structured that alleviation of harm actually produces other forms of harm. So I, I actually buy a lot of the arguments where we should just focus on studying social harm and alleviating social harm and not demonizing and not criminalizing a variety of folks, um, because that actually leads to a lot of other problems. And one of the things you mentioned was green criminology. And Avi Briesman, um, Eastern Kentucky University criminologist, wrote a, a piece in the edited volume. And I think we tend to downplay how much the environment actually impacts the ways in which we understand crime and deviance. Like there's an entire field of policing called crime prevention through environmental design, an entire logic to policing where we create spaces with crime pre prevention in mind. Like we build cities, we, we put things on benches so that loiterers won't and people won't sit on them. And there's, that's incredibly problematic. Please, cities, if you're an urban planner, never do that. Please, it's it's very harmful. But we like build surveillance systems and we put flower beds in particular areas rather than just have metal because you don't want skateboarders coming and doing their kickflips on it or whatever. Our environmental space actually impacts a lot about crime. And sport, you've nailed it. Like sport is implicated in that too. Not only in terms of big urban stadiums and stuff and the design of those, but also in things like massively exclusionary spaces, building a golf course over an area that used to be an area where certain people congregate. Or the LA Dodger Stadium that completely displaced an entire group of lower income Latinx communities. And we can't ignore that sport has a long history of doing these things and ruining environments, not just for like animals and other species, but also to as part of a political economic system. And I think that, that there's a big field or, or there, there's a lot of opportunity in the field of, of green criminology to explore these things, not least of which just case studies of, of things like Rio that are completely, that still today have effects. Like the Rio games still today, like causing ripple effects for racialized and marginalized and already vulnerable groups and have not made it better. They have in many ways made it worse. In the Olympics, Jules Boykoff is a very infamous scholar who is arguing for no Olympics for good reason, because there's a lot of problems with it and a lot of problems that criminologists should focus on as well. I, I do appreciate learning zemiology as a as a term because that was that's really that's really helpful to think about that whole field as, as social harm and you're right that it reframes our our focus in terms of crime and deviance you know, away from those or sort of what are what are the things that are yeah. harmful but not criminalized and then why 
right? I mean, that whole whole sort of field of almost white collar crime is about sort of why are these things? So you steal a you know five dollars from someone's purse and you shouldn't do that, right? But you know, you steal someone's purse and you steal fifty bucks from them and that gets you in jail. But you mm-hmm. steal fifty billion dollars and that gets you a fine. And you sort of think, how do those things line up on the harm scale? You know, when you steal fifty billion dollars from three million people, that's a civil offense. Yeah, that you don't go to prison for. But if if you steal fifty dollars from yeah. somebody, then you do go to prison for that, or go to jail. Certainly, go to jail for it for for a while. And then the so, way, also the ways that we talk about those different offenses too, right? The ways in which we like narrate and and represent each of those people very differently, and the ways we talk about crime and appropriate punishment, very different in those contexts, all part of this system, all part of this structural creation that allows for those discourses to operate, emerge and, and kind of sustain itself, sustain themselves. Well, that's really, that's really helpful because it does get, get us back to some of those fundamental aspects of the field of sociology that I think is attractive to a lot of people. And in my experience, it's sort of lose as we get into our specialties, at least I sometimes have lost sight of this, sort of how the particular thing that I'm studying relates to much broader structures and hierarchies and inequalities and injustices, social harms, as you say, in the broader society. So keeping the connections between those things in mind is exciting. Okay, that's an awesome introduction to the edited volume. So University of British Columbia Press coming out in 2022. So we'll look forward to that and maybe have you and some of the authors on. We, we should talk more about CTE and stuff like that in a minute. The other paper that you have with a fascinating title that it looks like it comes from an in vivo code here is about the Humboldt Broncos bus crash tragedy that happened in 2018. So the paper is called We Are All Broncos, Hockey, Tragedy, and the Formation of Canadian Identity. It was published in the Sociology of Sport Journal with Liam Kennedy, Madeline, maybe you'll have to help me pronounce her name. Quelo. Madeline Quelo would not have gotten that. Madeline Quelo <laughs> and William uh, Sapoli III on the Humboldt hockey team's fatal bus crash in 2018. So for those of us who are unfamiliar with the crash, what happened? Who are the Humboldt Broncos? And how did you analyze the media articles and other public reactions to this event? Yeah, this this was another project where Liam and I first and then and then ultimately a student who is now a PhD student at the University of Toronto, Madeleine Coelho, and a former colleague of mine, William Sapoli, that we kind of got our heads together while it was happening and we were like, This is this is really telling. Like everything that's happening in this case is really interesting sociologically. So what happened was, well, in April of 2018, the Humboldt Broncos, which are an ice hockey team playing in the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League, which is a couple steps below the NHL for kind of younger prospects to play in with hopes to make to the NHL. They boarded their plane or their bus, I should say. They boarded their bus for a playoff game uh, against the Nippawin Hawks. While they were traveling northbound on a Highway 35 in rural Saskatchewan, outside of Armley, Saskatchewan, the bus approached an intersection known as Armley Corner. It's kind of this infamous and notoriously dangerous intersection 
where two highways meet at a right angle. And it's very difficult to see its prairie, so very flat lands, but it's very difficult to see how vehicles are approaching. So as the bus approached the quarter, a semi truck traveling westbound on highway 335 failed to yield at a flashing stop sign. So, or at a flashing yield sign, it's not a fully, there's mixed ideas of what exactly this kind of stop sign yield sign is, but then it collided with the bus that was turning at the corner and ultimately killed 16 players and injured 13 more staff and players. So the immediate aftermath of this, like it was an absolute tragedy. Young people um, died and way too early. It was horrifying. And the crash inspired a sort of widespread reaction in Canada and elsewhere, but mostly uh, in Canada, including the establishment of a GoFundMe campaign that reached over 15 million and is still, I think, the highest grossing GoFundMe campaign in Canada. In addition, over 3,000 Albertans registered to be organ donors the weekend after this, and typically they get about 400. So blood donations increase as much as 25% in most Western Canadian cities. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people tweeted their condolences using the hashtag sticks out for Humboldt. There were a series of Jersey days in the months or in the weeks after where people sported a hockey jersey to show their kind of solidarity. And people put infamously put sticks outside of their houses with the lights on at night to signify sort of remembrance for this tragedy. This is all to say in Canada, this was like the story for in many ways, good reasons for a month. And every year since there's been hockey night in Canada, there's been like tributes to the Humboldt Broncos players who lost their lives. And it still is remembered as this like really fundamental tragedy that people still think about when they think about hockey. So as like a number of scholars have identified tragedies such as the Humboldt Broncos bus crash, but also things like 9-11, just tragedies have this sort of empathizing force and really stimulate collective action and community building and what Durkheim would call social solidarity. We, we've all kind of heard those takes before. And in this body of work, tragedy is actually often said to mobilize this solidarity in a particularly robust way, if you will. And some have also found that social relations in the public sphere fundamentally important to a community's recovery from the tragedy. So they're particularly important for the local community. But also that parochial events, such as like vigils or religious ceremonies or other rituals, work to amplify and sustain this social solidarity following the tragedies. So we were really interested in how these processes take place and kind of shape not only our responses to tragedy, but what they also tell us about what that tragedy means for the communities. In this case, both the local communities and the broader like hockey communities. And in the paper, we found that the responses to the bus crash tell us a lot about the, the roles that people take in sporting culture, about the role of sporting infrastructure, about the local and regional geographies and the roles that they play in constructing this idea of Canadian national identity, of what it means to be quote unquote Canadian. And in this way, we rely on Benedict Anderson's idea of imagining communities as these sort of communities that are constructed. He looked at the idea of the nation and how it's depicted as a socially constructed community imagined by the people who perceive themselves as part of the group 
Well, we take the same analytic approach and apply it to how like Canadians perceive themselves to be part of this group of Canadian national identity in the context of this tragedy. What we found was the ways in which we responded to Humboldt tell us a lot about what we think it means to be Canadian and how important hockey is to that idea of, of being Canadian and producing a Canadian national identity. And we found that it was actually particularly exclusionary. And what I mean by that is, yes, hockey is part of Canada. Yes, there are a lot of Canadians who play hockey. Yes, we take hockey very seriously. But you know what? Not everybody plays hockey. Not everybody has been on that bus. Not everyone in the the title of the paper is, we are all Broncos. Like, no, we are not. We are not all young men on a bus traveling to play hockey. Like, that is not what, what Canada is. That's not reflective of everything that Canadian national identity includes and encompasses. And therefore, the next corollary of the, or the next question there is, okay, who is left out from this narrative? And we trace out how the, our responses to this tragedy actually reinforce a really problematic understanding of what Canadian national identity is that, leads, that leaves out racialized Indigenous folks, people of color, Black Canadians, Asian Canadians, that leaves out the trans community and the LGBTQI plus community, all of these things that are left out from these narratives. And we also highlight that perhaps some of the reason why this is such an important and huge event in Canadian history is because it was a lot of young white men who were who were tragically harmed. And, and that's not to downplay how much of a tragedy and, and not to suggest that their lives don't matter, but we raise the uh, similar or other cases where many indigenous folks have been harmed or killed in similar events. And still to this day, there's a lot of unanswered questions about thousands of missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada that receive much less massive social reaction to. So we raise the question of why is that the case? We think that that has a lot to do with what Benedict Anderson might call the imagined community of Canadianness. And it's just another example of how we can learn a lot about ourselves and about the structure in which we live through analyzing sport. You know, one of the things I think was really innovative about this paper, and I don't I don't read a lot of papers that analyze tweets, but you analyzed over 125,000 tweet this sentiment analysis for this paper. But as you were saying earlier, you know, you like to let the data speak. And and I think what's so one of the things that's fascinating in this paper is is your quotations from these tweets. So many, many people are saying things like, I was on that bus. I grew up in in the prairie provinces. So that's sort of the Midwest of Canada. You know, I remember those long trips. It's where you bond with your teammates. It's where you play cards. It's where you talk about whatever's going on in your life where you get psyched up for, for the games. And and because I imagine, and maybe I'm wrong with this, but I imagine there are lots of people who have that experience, lots of yeah. mostly white men who have that experience. And that starts in very early, right? When you lace up your skates really young, maybe, and then you just continue up the levels if you keep playing in you know, junior high or high school and then beyond. But the level of attachment that lots of folks had to the same kinds of experiences that these Humboldt players had was, I think, part of this, the mechanism, I guess I would say, that really links this tragedy to this imagined, very uh, homogenous kind of vision of the nation 
and you know who who counts as an authentic Canadian. You know, in the United States, we have our own issues with who counts as an authentic American. Um, um, and and I think sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to cut oh, you off there. Uh, I, yeah, I, th- I think like you, you've kind of nailed it on the head in terms of how this constructs an idea of the authentic Canadian or like what it means to be authentically Canadian. And that really came out in the data. And there is something to the fact that many people have been on that bus, but there's also privilege and power with being able to say that <laughs> because hockey is not a, an inexpensive sport to play. Travel hockey in Canada is not an inexpensive or very accessible thing in Canada. So, so absolutely, it's it's a very homogenous space, not only along racial lines but also class lines, which aren't that different. And there's not there's no analysis of race without class and vice versa. But I think like part of this project was really highlighting how it's really a narrow representation of what it means to be what the nation of Canada is, if you will. Yeah, I think you cited here that I think something like only twenty two percent of Canadians actually play hockey. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, it's you know, not that, it's not as widespread as as we would if you just like go with the normal trope or the typical trope of Canadian that they have their Tim Hortons in their hands, they like have a beaver like around them, and they say a and sorry a lot, and they wear flannel and they play hockey. That's not the case for for most of Canada. Right. Uh, well, maybe the other thing that I wanted to ask you about in this paper was the use of Canadian identity by politicians and in politics, because I think that's another really fascinating part of this. So how did politicians react to this? What are they what are they saying about the young folks who lost their lives or were seriously injured in the accident? Yeah, it was very much the same narrow representation, which we often see in these events. And like, again, the, the Canada is not unique in this context. We saw the similar tropes. So some of my terrorism scholar stuff comes out in this paper as well, because we saw a lot of these same political responses after 9-11 and after that tragedy, where we start to see a very narrow representation of what it means to be an authentic community member or, or a person involved in in that community, what it means to be American, what it means to be Canadian, what it means to be any form of kind of imagined community. And they really bought in and they jumped fully into Sticks Out for Humboldt. They put their sticks out and they participated in the social media where everyone was taking pictures of their sticks out. I'm not suggesting that's inherently, there's some sort of insidious thing that they're not attempting to harm people but our point is that there are latent consequences of representing authentic canada in such a way it doesn't resonate with everyone and then what message do you send when you say we've all been on that bus when you get in front of a podium and you have a speech we've all been there we can all remember this what does that say to someone like me who had never played on a travel hockey team or like anyone else. I'm not even I'm not even referring to me specifically. If I didn't play on a hockey team growing up, what does that say? Am I less Canadian? Am I not to be considered part of the in-group here? And I think that there are damaging and harmful consequences of that. And we see it all over hockey night in Canada. We see it all over our main avenue into the sporting world, which tends to be hockey. Yeah, I think... One of the cool things that I think resonates with this paper and some of your other work is sports as a way of cultural boundary making, boundary marking. I mean, if you look at the NFL and the, this is probably 
maybe controversial way to say it, but the flag worship that yeah. occurs in NFL games, as well as the mili- worship of military symbols, military power, military might. I mean, if you are a person who lives in the United States, you're a, maybe you're a new U.S. citizen and you come from a country that was ravaged by a, a war that features American military hardware, you know, maybe your town is not existing anymore because it was, it was reduced to rubble on the back of some, some weapon that we, we produce in the United States. Maybe you don't think the same about that bomber that goes over the stadium, you know, when you're, if if you're watching on TV or if you're in the stadium itself. So I think, you know, it's, it's helpful to think about the implications of these, these rhetorics and how folks who are supposed to represent the whole people, right? So the, allegedly, ideally, like politicians have responsibility to represent all their constituents, not just yeah. a narrow slice of them. So, so, to ha- so to have those politicians participate and then reinforce a kind of narrowing or, as you say, narrow focus on Canadian identity is at the very least worth unpacking and thinking in a critical sort of sociological way about. Yes, Absolutely. And that's part of that. That's the entire project of let's call it critical sociology and critical criminology, right? It is to at least unpack these. It's not just some folks tend to think that being critical of social structures means you are trying to get rid of them and all of these things, which may be the case, certainly in some respects, but it's not like being critical is about highlighting the tangible, empirically valid, empirically demonstrable effects of things that may cause them. I'm not suggesting we should not respond to a tragedy like the Humboldt Broncos and stay silent about it. That's not what a corollary of this paper is, that we shouldn't mourn people who have lost their lives. But yes, we should be a little bit critical of how we respond to those. And the picture that that paints for folks who don't feel part of that community, and then on top of that, have other tragedies that harm them and not remembered in the same way. I think we have to have these conversations. Right, right. Yeah, I sometimes get that critique too. When you criticize something, it's that you don't support it necessarily or you don't think that it has good effects or positive social effects. And that's not the case. But somehow social scientists are supposed to like love everything about their country or something like something like that. Yeah, yeah we, we get it a lot in, in terms of the End of Sport podcast. And we level a lot of critiques in the sporting world and I'll stand by all of those critiques. I still like sports. I am still a sports fan because I critique something and I say like, wow, it's really harmful. I don't mean let's get rid of sports. Let's just get rid of everything. Let's not do anything. Let's not do physical activity. That's not a corollary of the argument. And those, those arguments to me, I don't even want to engage them anymore. It's just, we can be critical of something that we enjoy that we think has some pro-social pro-social is a weird term but like let's just continue the good things and change the things that are bad we don't have to like if you have to make a sport for instance unrecognizable to make it not harmful then yes we should completely change that sport yes in certain contexts which we might talk about in a couple minutes yes i think some sports may be too far gone and we should get rid of them. That doesn't mean um, that I hate every fan and and every person who is um, like partial to that sport. It's just those two things don't equate with each other. Yeah, I mean, you're reminding me of a an event that Matt Ventresca and I went to a while back, where the argument was made by some very prominent sports other folks involved in athletic training and 
and such that if you are critical of the way that the college football deals with head injuries, concussion, CTE, that kind of stuff, then you're in favor of folks not playing sports and staying at home and eating potato chips and playing video games all day. And basically you're like abetting obesity among young people. And that, you know, that, as you say, that doesn't follow from the argument logically. It also doesn't, fo- it doesn't follow from the internal consistency of that argument too, because in many ways in college football, they endorse obesity. So it falls flat immediately off the block, if you will, because in that specific context makes no sense. Yeah, well, you should have seen all the heads nodding. Um, <laughs> Matt and I, we were not nodding our heads to that argument. People who were involved in high school football who were taken in by that argument. All right, well, let, let's turn to, I think now is the time, to turn to yeah. your book that you're working on with Nathan Coleman lamb The End of College Football, Exploitation in the Ivory Tower and on the Gridiron. This makes me think that maybe you are critiquing college football as it exists now. I know this is a big topic of your end of sport podcast. You know, I'm a big fan of the show and uh, I did read the book proposal there. You lay out the argument that college football, let's start with racial capitalism. So you start out or you argue in the book proposal that college football is an important site for racial capitalism. For those of us who, for those who are not so familiar with that term, how, how does that work in college football? Thank you. I, thanks for the support for the show. It's it's wonderful to have to have more than a couple people will read your paper, maybe, but actually have some listeners. We were talking about that before um, we hopped on. But yeah, a number of scholars have documented how college football epitomizes what Cedric Robinson famously calls racial capitalism, and this is a process whereby white authorities extract economic value from black and brown bodies through structuring the labor market in such a way that those the labor market in which those bodies participate. So through structuring the labor market, they extract wealth from these communities. That's a the analytic frame of racial capitalism. Others like Stanley Eitzen and Billy Hawkins, most notably, build on Robinson's work to illuminate the ways in which the NCAA structure embodies what they actually call a new plantation mentality through which predominantly white NCAA Division I institutions or PWIs create and maintain a system whereby black and brown athletes' experiences are akin to um, what Billy Hawkins calls, and I'm quoting now, broader historical and social uh, contexts of exploitation endured by internally colonized people in the system of slavery. So building on this framework, our project seeks to document some of the ways in which college football's exploitative dynamics are inherently and irrevocably linked to racial capitalism as a function of structural racism in the United States more broadly. What we're actually trying to do is highlight how this is a manifestation of racial capitalism that systematically steals wealth from racialized black and brown communities to put in the hands of predominantly white institutions. I think there is a lot of useful analytic rigor in the concept of racial capitalism to not only understand the big system in which much of the Western world operates within, but also how specific modalities of exploitation exist and are maintained. The reason why we focus on the NCAA is both Nathan, I don't want to speak for Nathan, but we've had these conversations. It's perhaps the most obvious and most clear example of racial capitalism that might exist in contemporary society at large, um, but definitely in the sporting world. 
So we're trying to leave or launch discussions of the NCAA and higher education more broadly through this idea of racial capitalism and Billy Hawkins' book that built upon um, Robinson's work called The New Plantation. I mean, I, I was even thinking like in terms of, let's say football teams themselves, there's a yeah. often an internalized racial hierarchy in terms of who plays what position. So we're thinking about folks who are subject to the most like risk of, of injury or head injury and the players that are often most, most protected. So we know that, for example, quarterbacks are more likely to be white men than, let's say, linebackers. And also that quarterbacks are protected by a set of, of rules that uh, prohibit certain kinds of tackling and other kinds of violence against their bodies that aren't that aren't enforced at the same level for other players. Who gets the routine hits and who gets the extraordinary ones is also operative along racial lines on these teams, which mirrors the overall structure that you're talking, racialized structure that you're talking about as well. Okay, well, let's talk about risk. The risk of playing college football are, I think it's fair to say, are getting increased levels of attention Concern about yeah, yeah. chronic traumatic encephalopathy, you know, repeated hits to the head, a lack of consistent health care after your career is over, or even um, really substandard health care or health care that's only focused on rehabilitating an injury for the purposes of playing a, a sport. And then, of course, the fact that so few players ever make it to the professional leagues, whether that is in, in basketball, it might be playing in Europe or playing in the NBA, uh, playing in the in the G League, versus the NFL is really the one of the only professional outlets for football players in the U.S. So there's a whole set of of, of problems. There are a few a few things that are going on right now that might help alleviate some of those tensions, the controversy or the discussion right now over name, image, and likeness rights. But all of this is against the backdrop of folks who would say, "Look, D1 players are already getting compensated. They get a college education. They get their sneakers for free. They get they get um, access to study halls and special nutrition, and they get maybe a little bit of a stipend here and there when they travel and so forth." I'm sure you get this question, you know, when people are talking about this and they say, well, you're getting a college education. What are folks missing when they make those kinds of arguments and look at compensation in those more narrow ways? Yeah, I think the the compensation is the most widespread conversation kind of happen or debate happening in college athletics and in the NCAA. And it, it's really between folks who, on the one hand, like you are suggesting, suggest that they receive enough compensation, that uh, campus athletic workers receive enough compensation in the form of an education and in the form of some benefits and some forms of payment. And then the reformist take, which is the other predominant take in the field, which is like we can reform NCAA to allow ways in which campus athletic workers can receive some form of remuneration. Like name image likeness maybe some endorsements of some to some degree nathan and i or dr dr coleman lamb and i completely sidestep both of these arguments and we think that both the compensation argument as well as the reformist logic miss the fundamental question which is physical and economic exploitation regardless it doesn't matter if you reform the NCAA and bring in new name image likeness modalities and new ways to kind of earn peanuts is what you would, would call that. There will still be this underlaying structure of 
racial capitalism and racial inequality and racial exploitation that we need to deal with, that we need to actually adequately deal with, that may, to some extent, make the output of college athletics almost foreign to us, or it will make it incomprehensible for us. We think that in this case, the college athletic exploitation system is probably too far gone to even be saved without fundamental kind of revolutions within within the sport. And that's what the project of the book is. It's to kind of take on this ubiquitous theme of compensation and the, the reformist logic is seemingly taken over. Yet rather than kind of parsing out the budgets of NCAA institutions, which tend to be the center of this discourse, we look at how athletes themselves are experiencing this structure, which we think is ignored from both of these camps. The reformist logic ignores the athlete's voice, and so does the compensation. The compensation argument is easily taken down when you ask students about their experiences in the classroom. And you ask students about their experiences and their accessibility to the experiences of a so-called student. For example, one of the common examples that we use to kind of talk through people who say like, yes, like campus athletic workers, they have scholarships and they have a sort of free ride. It's like, yeah, they also don't have access to support systems like others um, for deeply engaging with their course material. They are expected to basically work what in some cases is a 60 to 80 hour work week during the athletic year. And whether or not education is possible in that context, I'm not sure how many students, quote unquote, typical students work 80, 60 to 80 hours a week while going to school. And do those students feel like supported by their system? And then two, campus athletic workers often don't have, they're not allowed to participate in the college life like other quote unquote typical students. The most pressing example is like if you wanted a summer internship, but you're on the football team and you want to travel to Italy or some place on a school sponsored internship, you likely do not even have that opportunity. You likely cannot do that because you have responsibilities covered under your contract to your athletic department and you have to be there for practices. So you don't have access to a lot of the same experiences. One of the stories I often tell based on my own experience is that I was teaching a class with a lot of campus athletic workers in the class. And I was late at night, I was working on my work um, as um, because at the time I was a PhD student and I was working uh, late at night and I turned on the TV and noticed that a team is playing, that the university that I was at, their basketball team was on the TV. And half, a lot of the students were in my class or in other classes. And it was past midnight and it was an overtime game. And it was, I noticed it was in another state. So I was asking myself, oh, interesting. Is this, is this like a repeat or is this not live? No, it was live. And I had to teach at 8.30 the next morning. And a lot of those students would have been expected to be in that class or be in other classes with other profs at 8.30 in the morning. And they were playing past midnight in another state. That means they still had to come home and then get into bed and then wake up. Next morning I wake up and students are in my class and they're at the back and they're sleeping for good reason. I would be too. So my question there is if education is compensation, if we can approach it as compensation for labor, are we even giving adequate supports and adequate education to those folks if that's the exchange? I don't think that's the exchange. 
I don't think that's the exchange at all. I think the exchange is in some ways opportunity to maybe get a degree. And we know this by looking at different rates in graduation, in the annual graduation gaps, to maybe get a degree for unpaid labor or relatively unpaid labor that benefits certain people, most notably coaches, athletic departments, presidents, and other people at universities, and systematically exploits the labor in which generates all of that revenue. So the compensation argument to me is is almost a non-argument. I think that campus athletic workers are not given the benefit that they are promised. And if you ask campus athletic workers, which we are in the book, they don't think that they're getting a fair share either. So I think we need to move beyond those that debate about compensation and even the reformist logic. I'm not sure that name image likeness rights are going to do anything to support because the system or the NCAA still controls the parameters of those rights. For example, if I am at the University of Texas and there are no rights or their name image likeness rights, and I say, yes, you have the rights to your own name image likeness, but you can only do endorsements with these five companies. Well, we also have a relationship with those five companies, by the way. Hey, Under Armour or Nike, I work with you. Don't pay them too much. Don't give them too much money. We like give it to us or like, don't take it out of our share. They create the parameters or they can create the parameters for those name image likeness. They might not do it now. They might not do it right away because it might be a bad look, but they always have that sort of control. So in some ways, I think that the name image likeness story is the great distraction of college athletics right now. It's a way to distract our attention away from the broader question of the mass mass racialized exploitation that's that exists and saying like oh no we're we're doing something we're reforming everyone look we're doing a good job and i think like no it's it's you're still going to massively exploit these folks yeah well i mean the ncaa is a cartel um and so that just means that they have a great deal of control over the work of athletic laborers, as you as you say. And it's a um, NIL would be a way to just ensure the continuing control of the parameters over over that compensation, whatever it happens to be. But what I hear you saying on the on the academic side is that there's actually not much value in the compensation that is provided through a scholarship and through the opportunity to sit in on classes and potentially get a degree, I mean, particularly if you are laboring under such difficult and strenuous conditions such that you can't actually engage your body and mind in the educational process. And so why are we surprised when we see graduation rates in so-called revenue sports that are much, much lower than the general student population? At my place, I know our athletes are are monitored. They're, they have an app on their phones and they're all these sort of checkpoints in the in the university that make sure they go to class, which is a, another thing that most students in the general population don't actually have to do, right? We don't, we may take attendance, but we don't actually monitor their actual movements. I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to ask the people who are in charge of that system, their take on vaccine passports. I would really be curious to hear what they would think of vaccine passports and how that differs from the context in which they're structuring the lives of of young, predominantly black and racialized folks, adults, by the way, like 
complete adults. And I, I don't want to say that there is no value to the education or there, I'm not a, I'm not on that side where I think that there's no value in university or higher education. I think there's an incredible, incredible value in higher education. I'm also biased because I'm a university professor. I think there's absolute value in learning, teaching, um, figuring out how to, or getting the skills to think critically, to use your sociological imagination, or to understand methods and how to answer questions. I think there's a lot of value in that. I do question whether or not the transmission of those skills and those lessons is possible in the context, in the ways in which we we think it is. Yes, if you have unlimited time, and you can finish all your assignments and do everything, and you can put all 100% of your time into education, you're going to get an amazing experience. You're going to get a, a wonderful experience. But if you're giving 60 hours per week and putting your body through terrible conditions, both mentally and physically, and you're worried about playing time and whether or not you can go out on the weekend because maybe your coach will find out and, and take playing time away, you're worried about all these things. Plus, you might be thinking about maybe your draft or the possible future. I don't think that sets the stage for the transmission of knowledge and, and critical thinking that is necessary in, in higher education. Yeah, well, you're not going to get a, a counter-argument from me on the value of higher education. <laughs> Most of the listeners to the Annex are, are uh, sold on the value of, of higher education. But I just wanted to make that clear. But you're, but you're right that if the conditions are not there to actually achieve the kinds of growth and development and, as you say, critical thinking skills and so forth that are so, uh, not to mention the social aspect, right? I mean, like, there's a reason why athletes are congregating together in the cafeterias or in the in the dining facilities right they have an experience that's very different from the sort of the modal gen pop student at the institution right yeah and a lot of a lot of people use that also as like this guys this symbolic or social capital that campus athletic workers have that other students don't. And therefore that is also a form of remuneration or benefits. Like they walk around campus and they're, they're like the, the head of campus. They get all this like attention. So, so attention is to me, my, the, the natural question is attention is now money. Like attention is a resource that you can now use. Yes. Bourdieu says there is something to social capital. You can use that social capital and exchange it for other forms of capital. Fine. But no, you can't when the system of exchanging for economic capital is conditioned for you by something called NCAA rules. You can't. At the end of the day, like doesn't matter how much symbolic power or capital you can accumulate when you can't translate into that into a material resource that funds and fuels the entire system of our, of our existence. I just don't see it. Sorry, I get very passionate about these, as you can tell. No, that's good. No, I mean, I think well, one of the things that's like, that's so fundamentally interesting about this is why in the world we actually have basically like semi-pro teams sponsored by colleges and universities. Like how is it that the educational mission gets linked up to farm teams for the NFL or major league baseball or soccer, any of these other sports. Right. And that, I mean, obviously like Taylor branches are about this. Other people have, have written about it. But in the context of colleges being linked up to the NCAA and sort of managing their athletic endeavors through that organization and really trying to lock in athletic workers into a college environment, 
really does does kind of prevent other kinds of startups from delinking or decoupling college education from athletic performance. And so I know you've had folks on your podcast that talk about alternative leagues for basketball players who want to be enrolled in college during the school year and want to play at a professional level and be compensated at least much more handsomely than they are under regular NCAA rules. There's also the G League. You know, there, yeah, there doesn't sure. seem to be a, a, a G League type thing for football players, although I guess you could imagine something like that. So maybe, maybe if you could say a little bit about what an alternative system might look like that would keep some of our sports. But I, I also want to make space to say in this book, you're making this argument that we cannot have football, college football, in the way that we've had it before. So essentially, you're a football abolition, college football abolitionist in, in a lot of ways. So maybe help us think about other options that might decouple college education from athletic performance and also you know, your argument about really transforming college football fundamentally. Yeah, to be very clear, like I have no problem putting this out there, and nor does Nathan. I don't think we are football abolitionists um, in terms of football as a broad as a sport, and that is for bodily reasons. I think like football in particular, on top of the exploitation, is also a fundamentally harmful experience. Boston CTE study, we see 90, between 90 and 99% of um, former players have signs of CTE, a degenerate, degenerative, non-reversible form of brain damage that you know much more about than I do. So I'm not going to teach folks about that side. But I think it's just so harmful that we need to rethink the, the existence of the sport to begin with. Then, then there's also these arguments of like, what does the sport look like? How do we kind of reform the sport? Because I understand that that position is likely never to happen. So there are other things that we can do. It's possible, I guess, but I don't see that being the end, right? Or the football being abolished. So there are other things that we can think about. And I always talk to folks about this in terms of the historical development of what others call the Disneyfication of university campuses and the coupling of um, college sports with universities in order to sell a kind of product to sell this sort of atmosphere of disney of this theme park this am- the beer and circus kind of the the sperber i think is the name of the author. exactly and it wasn't always like this it wasn't it hasn't even been like till relatively recently you mentioned like taylor branch he documents how walter byers the first executive president of the ncaa created this idea of the student athlete to deal with athletes who are getting injured on the field in football, trying to claim work person's compensation at the time, workman's compensation to get paid for their injuries. Even himself, when he was deposed before his death, Walter Byers said he never imagined that that would exist in the context of the heavily commercialized, massively endorsed system of campus athletics that ended up becoming but he should have seen that coming because he should have seen the once you open or create basically a system where campus athletic workers could make money for universities but also cannot make money because they're supposedly students first athletes second you create a system that will always work as a successful accumulation of capital in an advanced capitalist system He should have seen this coming. He didn't, or maybe he did, and he's just saying he didn't. But that set the stage for this massive increase 
in like, okay, let's view our athletic departments as forms of revenue generation for our universities. We need more money. At the same time, funding, federal and state level funding was going down. How do we replace that? Oh, let's build more seats in our stadiums. Let's sell more tickets. Let's sell endorsement rights to Nike or to Adidas or to Puma or to Under Armour for our jerseys. Let's create bookstores where we can sell all of this stuff. Let's do all of these things because we are systematically being gutted by the governments and we are more reliant on tuition and campus athletic workers for revenue. Those two things go hand in hand. You build your athletic departments, you recruit more students, you become successful on the field, you get more students who want to come and cheer on Bama or the Tigers or whatever. It all goes hand to hand. You build the bigger stadiums, amazing infrastructure, all these wonderful things, and you can sell game day when those students come looking at your school. You can say, we have the best game day experience. We've won six national championships. Come here and you will pay your residence fees, pay your tuition, and you will have access to this wonderful amusement park-like experience. All of these things were happening. All of these things were a social and economic process over time. So my argument is, if we can make it happen, we can unmake it. We can go back. We can change the system in such a way that no longer does this. This may include abolishing college football. I don't see that necessarily as a legitimate end to this. Like, I don't think that's actually going to happen. But what can we do? Fundamentally rethink higher education in North America. That's the root cause of the problem for me. Nathan and I disagree a little bit in the, in this uh, on this point. But I think the fundamental problem is our systematic and long-standing devaluing and defunding of public education, over-reliance on student tuition, and the Disneyfication of our university campuses, the over-reliance on international student tuition, all of these things, we need to reinvest in public education to make, to lay the context, to make it so that those forms of revenues are less important for our institutions of higher education. And then they can refocus on being an institution of higher education rather than an institution of amusement, bringing all these sensory experiences. What that would mean in the context of college football is to decouple higher education from campus athletic work. Completely decouple. If that means you sell the NCAA or make it a private entity, I don't know. You need to decouple that from our minds. University of Alabama should not have a non-pro but pro football team under their their realm. An uncompensated pro player, pro football. I mean, it's great to make money if you have a zero, not zero, if you have relatively trivial labor costs, right? Yes. These days you can't employ eight-year-olds to work in your cotton mill anymore. Yeah. We don't allow that. So in any case, I think one of the things that I always tell my students is just like you say, we made it, we can unmake it. Another world is possible. We just have to be thinking about what we want and how to actually how to actually get there. So if we did if we did want to organize a semi-professional football league that has nothing to do with college education and employs 18 to 24-year-old players on average, then there's nothing that would stop us from doing that, right? And I would think I think there's the college 
professional sports, professional basketball league that an economist, Andy, forget his last name. Andy Schwartz. Yeah. Yeah. Andy Schwartz. David West and Ricky Valanti. They had the professional collegiate league, which this is exactly what they're kind of promising. It's still obviously an economic thing. There's still obviously revenue and there is an analytic form of exploitation happening because somebody has to make money there. So it's still the capitalist system, but it provides an opportunity for folks to go elsewhere, similar to the G League, but they can also get supports in their education endeavors and still be in college if they want to while participating. There are other ways. Absolutely. There are other things that we can think about. One of the critiques that has been launched at our take is that there are a lot of folks we claim to care or we claim that this is a part of a, a racial capitalist system and that mostly black and brown bodies are the ones that are exploited uh, in a variety of ways. And if you take the NCAA, the, the NCAA f- like football and basketball away, they might not have the same opportunities. I think a corollary of changing higher education is also changing how we admit, how we make higher education accessible for folks. You cannot do one without the other. There's no reason why folks cannot or should not be allowed access or have access to higher education in the ways that are systematically racialized that we've seen over time. There's no reason why we continue to rely on the SATs and on a variety of metrics that are biased in a variety of ways. So you can't do one without the other. I just wanted to make that clear. As well. I mean, I think the other thing, not to get too far into athletic budgets, but we know that there are only a handful of schools that at the bottom line actually make, self-profess, make money off of their athletic. Well, that's for so many reasons. That's because of the Disneyfication. That's because they constantly reinvest in stadium upgrades every year. Take your your local professional team whose infrastructure, whose stadium was likely paid for by taxpayer dollars. Do they put upgrades in almost every single year? No. Probably not. But you know who does almost every year? Canvases. If it's not directly athletic, if it's not directly on their stadium, it's a new state-of-the-art training facility or three new state-of-the-art training facilities. There are a variety of critiques leveled at NCAA programs and athletic departments for basically hiding their revenue. And then they also pay their coaches $11 Yeah, I was just going to say, like, you know, that's those are the ones who profess making money for their university. But you do have to look at all the things that are costing that aren't really related to either the student, the athletic worker experience, or, you know, you think about where that money could go if it were redirected to the core enterprise, right? Which would be expanding the number of seats, right? Which would be offering more expansive scholarship monies for folks who are from disadvantaged backgrounds or racialized minorities, Right. There are lots of other other ways to direct those resources, but I think you're you're right to point to the disinvestment, public disinvestment in higher education and, and the really the rise of seeing education as a private good instead of a public good when we know that more educated folks are a bunch of uh, pro-social positive benefits to to the widespread completion of BA degrees, bachelor's degrees and, and other forms of, of higher education. To me, I think this is fundamentally a problem that we must first deal with at the level of higher education. 
that we need to return to a time where we treat public education as a public good, not a private sector thing, entity that we have. And until we do that, we can't deal with any of this. We can't truly deal with the rights of campus athletic workers. That's why the book ends with the penultimate chapter of the book is talking about reforming higher education, taking it outside of the context of just sport. Do you have a, do you have a publisher? This under contract? Yeah, UNC, UNC Press. Yeah. So we're hoping to, again, have that out in 2022, but it'll be with UNC Press. We're very huge fans of the editorial staff there. And Kathleen Bashinsky's book is incredible. So they've published some really great work. So it's kind of obvious that it lands with UNC Press. Yeah, no, that's a great press. And Bashinsky's book is awesome. And they've published a lot of really good stuff. Garrett Felber's book, they they published interesting decisions the UNC folks have made over the past couple of years, including their pick for head leadership guy there. But that's a different topic for a different day. I It's nice that the press is autonomous from some of the things that happen at the university as well. Well said, well said. <laughs> uh, well, Derek, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? No, no, it's been a blast chatting with you. I'm, I'm a fan of the podcast always, so I, I enjoy chatting with you or, or Joseph where, whenever. So, so thanks for having me. Well, yeah, always a pleasure to, to have people on who are doing interesting work that helps us think about our leisure time, the things we take for granted, the kind of inequalities and social harms that exist in, in contexts we might not always see. Where can people find you online, Derek? Follow your work? Yeah, I, you can find me on Twitter at Derek Krim, or you can follow the podcast as well um, at End of Sport Pod. Yeah, those are the two places where I'm most active and I always chat with people on Twitter. So you can reach out to me there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Derek, for being on the Annex. We'll see you soon. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. The Annex is a project of the Queen's Podcast Lab from the City University of New York, Queen's College. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Music for the Annex is provided by Lena Orsa.